10 church growth strategies that cost zero dollars. Number one, exude more passion. Number two, cut the weird. Number three, expand your vision. Number four, encourage people to fall in love with your mission, not your methods. Number five, smile more. Number six, stop fighting. Number seven, pay attention, much better attention to first-time guests. Number eight, treat your volunteers better. Number nine, invite someone. Number ten, become friends with people who aren't Christians. Seven keys to church growth. Number one, know where your church is going. Number two, create an inviting atmosphere. Number three, create a welcoming experience. Number four, care for church members. Number five, provide opportunities to serve. Number six, proper management of church resources. And number seven, enjoy the ride. Forty-four church growth principles that are real and work. Just kidding, I'm not going to read these. (laughs) I'm not going to waste our time with any more of those things. We are living in a church growth movement age. Everywhere you look, there's an article or an advertisement proclaiming things like this. Seven things that will drive future church growth. Five most important church growth principles. And the one thing that most of these titles and most of these articles and books and whatever they are, most of the thi- one of the things that they have in common is that they're man-made. Some of the most famous preachers throughout history, so men like George Whitfield, John Knox, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, they had many people who sat under their ministry. Whitfield preached to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And so, for example, we could argue... Um, that aside from the Jerusalem church in Acts chapter 2, where it, it actually says in verse 41 that those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, we could argue that aside from that, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, probably pastored the world's first megachurch. And at its height, he had somewhere around 10,000 people attending regularly. And he preached without amplification. And he wrote about church growth. In fact, in his book called The Soul Winner, Spurgeon answers the question, what is it to win a soul? And he answers like this, at least in part. He says, we do not consider soul winning to be accomplished by hurriedly inscribing more names upon our church roll in order to show a good increase at the end of the year. This is easily done. There are brethren who use great pains, not to say arts, to effect it. But if it be regarded as the alpha and omega of a minister's efforts, the result will be deplorable. He says, by all means, let us bring true converts into the church. For it's part of our work to teach them to observe all things whatsoever that Christ has commanded them. But but still, this is to be done to disciples, he says, and not, not mere professors. And if care be not used, we may do more harm than good at this point. To introduce unconverted persons to the church is to weaken and degrade it, and therefore an apparent gain may be a real loss. I'm not one to decry statistics. He says, nor do I consider that they are productive of all manner of evil, for they do much good if they are accurate and if men use them lawfully. It's a good thing for people to see the nakedness of the, of the land through the statistics of decrease. 
that they may be driven on their knees before the Lord to seek prosperity. And on the other hand, it is by no means an evil thing for workers to be encouraged by having some account of the results set before them. I should be very sorry if the practice of adding up, deducting, and giving the net result were abandoned, for it must be right to know our numerical condition. Numbers are not a bad thing, is what Spurgeon is saying here. Accounting, taking attendance is not wrong. In fact, it can be very right and even biblical. But he says this, and I know this is a long quote, but bear with me for a moment. He says, it has been noticed that those who object to the process, that is, counting people in the church, are often brethren whose unsatisfactory reports should somewhat humiliate them. This is not always so, but it is suspiciously frequent. He says, I heard of the report of a church the other day in which the minister, who is well known to have reduced his congregation to nothing, somewhat cleverly wrote, our church is looking up. When he was questioned with regard to his statement, he replied, well, everybody knows that the church is on its back. It can do nothing but look up. The church was dead, but the pastor was an optimist. As he goes on to say, some of the most glaring sinners known to me were once members of the church. And they were, as I believe, led to make a profession by undue pressure, well-meant, but ill-judged. Do not therefore consider that soul winning is or can be secured by the multiplication of baptisms and the, and the swelling of the size of the church. But what mean these dispatches from the battlefield? And he gives this one example. He says, last night 14 souls were under conviction, 15 were justified, and 8 received full sanctification. I think that means that they died. I'm, I'm weary of this public bragging, this counting of unhatched chickens, this exhibition of doubtful spoils. Lay aside such numberings of the people, such idle pretense of certifying in half a minute that which will need the testing of a lifetime. Hope for the best, but in your highest excitements be reasonable. Enquiry rooms are all very well but if they lead to idle boastings, they will grieve the Holy Spirit and work abounding evil. Now that was a long section, but essentially what we need to do is slow down and pay attention to the ordinary means of grace and making disciples as Jesus commanded us. So the Apostle Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's workers, and you are God's field, God's building. But before we can see God's work through men like Spurgeon, or the Reformers, or even Paul and Apollos in Corinth, or the amazing, amazing growth of the church in the, throughout the book of Acts, we need to look at what Jesus did to gain followers because the others all looked and, and pointed to him. Paul even said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so how did Jesus gain followers? I'm sure that the church growth gurus of the day, those who write those kinds of articles, they would like to remove John chapter 6 from the Bible. See, Jesus did what the experts tell us not to do. He made things harder to understand. He required repentance and belief. And he even, he even took this metaphor of calling himself the bread of life. He, he took that just a little too far for most of the crowd following him. 
by the end of chapter 6, our modern church growth professionals would write him off as an absolute, abject, utter failure. Because most of the people will leave him. Even the verses that we're going to talk about this morning, the central uh, statements of this chapter, many pastors will tell you, many learned people will say, don't talk about those things. That's just doctrine, and doctrine divides. But I would argue that doctrine is actually not only important, it's actually beautiful. That it helps us to worship. And that this doctrine of the nature of salvation that we're going to look at here in a moment is of utmost importance to us if, if we're to be Christians. If we're to be truly a child of God and if we're to, to care about, as, as Spurgeon would say, soul winning. So turn to John chapter 6. If you're not already there, I want to read verses 34 to 40. We're going to look at this brief section in the middle of John chapter 6. I've said as we have worked our way through the chapter so far, that verse 35 is what we are keeping our eyes on. And so we're going to talk about this today. John 6, beginning in verse 34. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of that all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's just stop and pray one more time. Lord, we are needy. We're a needy people. And so I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. Help us to understand that we may glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this short paragraph, these few verses here, kind of a brief portion of a, of a dialogue, a fairly long dialogue between Jesus and a, and a large group of people who have essentially been kind of chasing him, uh, following him, but, but really chasing him down as he's, as he's crossed the Sea of Galilee as we've worked through this. He has fed 5,000 men, so something like 5,000 families from five loaves and two fishes. They're amazed at this, and then he got up in the, apparently sometime in the night and walked across the sea away from them. And so when they come to and realize that he's gone, they chase him down. And people come from other places, as we saw last week, and they're trying to find him. In this short section, just these few verses, Jesus lays out many truths about the doctrine of salvation, about the nature of his relationship with the Father, and, and even about the assurance of believers. But probably the most bold-faced statements that he makes here is that he, he talks about the will of God. In fact, he uses the word will several times. He talks about the will of God as if it's something he actually knows, as if it's something he's actually confident in, something he has direct knowledge of. Four times he tells us that, that it, what it is to know the will of God. A couple times he mentions his own will. 
But he talks about all of this under the banner of this statement. I am the bread of life. This is the first of what we call these I am statements in the book of John. And we understand these statements, we've mentioned them before, but we understand them to be his claims of deity. He is claiming for himself the name that that God had revealed to Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. When God says, he says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus lays out seven I am statements that clearly identify Jesus as God, as Messiah. And he begins here with, I am the bread of life. Later on, not too long from now, he will say, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the true vine. And then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you remember in our study over the last few weeks, just in the previous verse, just there in verse 34, The people have been asking him for bread. Really, they're asking him all throughout the chapter since they were fed back in the first 15 verses, chasing him down for bread. But really, in verse 34, they're they're more than just asking him for bread. They're really challenging him. They're saying essentially, sure, you can multiply bread. We saw that. We saw the 12 baskets that you picked up after. But Moses actually gave us bread from heaven. Can you top that? See, they're challenging him because of his claims to be able to even to give them eternal life. They're challenging him based on his claims to be the son of man in the previous section. They're challenging him based on his claims to be the son of God. And this request, or really this demand in verse 34, it's, it reminds us, it's, it's reminiscent of the, the request of the Samaritan woman back in chapter 4. Do you remember when they stop in Samaria, the disciples go off to find lunch and Jesus sits down and asks for water from the woman drawing from the well. And After a conversation, when he says, I would give you living water, she responds in verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she, she wanted water in order to meet her immediate desire. She wanted to not have to come in the heat of the day and draw water anymore. She didn't want to have to do this anymore. She wanted to be able to stay home and just have water. She wanted water in order to meet this immediate desire. And just like her, this crowd wanted Jesus to to meet their immediate need for daily bread. They wanted food. They wanted bread for their stomachs. And they, just like the woman at the well, they they didn't really believe that Jesus could do this. And so this next paragraph, at least at this point they don't believe that. At least at that point she didn't believe that. But this next paragraph, verses 35 to 40, is Jesus' response to their request. And as he responds, he drops the metaphor and he speaks to them plainly. Later in the chapter he's going to pick it up again, but here he drops it. 
And as he does, he gives us three important truths about himself for us to understand. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool back in the late 1800s, he said this of this passage. He says, three of our Lord Jesus' great sayings are strung together like pearls in this passage. Each of them ought to be precious to every true Christian. All taken together, they form a mine of truth into which he that searches need never search in vain. Let me give you those three truths. It's really the statements that he makes. Then we'll go back and go through them. The first thing he says, clearly, he is the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He is, he is food for man's soul, he says. Second, he is the receiver of all who come to him. He will never reject you. He makes that statement twice, really. And then third, he, he's the preserver of all Christians, all believers. He will fulfill God's will for salvation. He's their preserver. So as I said, Jesus does begin here to, to speak plainly to them, at least for a moment. But he begins this by explaining the metaphor, begins explaining this metaphor by telling them that he is the bread of life. So this is the first one that we should see. Christ is the bread of life. He is food for man's soul. Again, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is, this is probably one of the most famous statements Jesus ever makes. Behind maybe John 3.16, uh, increasingly behind the infamous and always, almost always used out of context, judge not, but this statement, this verse here, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, is the central sentence for this entire chapter. This is, this is the central uh, comment that he makes in this entire chapter. All of this, the entirety of John chapter 6, is about that sentence. It's all background or illustration or explanation of the phrase, I am the bread of life. So everything that we've looked at so far in this chapter has led up to this truth. And the rest of this chapter has, uh, really is an exposition of this truth. Jesus is and has always been the true bread. Moses, Moses did not and could not give the people of Israel their bread. Jesus even corrected them. We saw last week and said, no, the manna was from heaven and then he tells them that the manna was pointing to him. It was pointing at Christ. And so when they said, give us this bread always, or, or really what that means is, keep on giving us this bread, the crowd was suggesting that, that the bread from heaven needed to be given over and over. I'm going to be hungry again tomorrow. Give us this bread always. Keep on giving us this bread. In fact, I want you to listen to God's instruction to the people of Israel back in Exodus chapter 16 and see if the attitude of the ancient Israelites doesn't reflect the attitude of the crowd before him that day. Just listen to, it's Exodus 16. I'm going to read verses 2 through 12. Exodus 16, beginning in verse 2, says, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. 
For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And, and remember, he hasn't given them the law yet. It doesn't happen for another couple of chapters. He's going to test them. Verse 5, on the sixth day, um, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening to eat meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that, we, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The bread there in Exodus, it needed to be given over and over. And that time, really that time of receiving manna from heaven, manna from God, bread from God, that only, that only really lasted a brief period of history, relatively speaking. But Jesus insists here, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And, it, and that's just a statement. It's just an expansion of, of the statement that he made to the woman at the well. Back in verse 14 of chapter 4, he said, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus puts these two concepts together. And he tells them that if they would come to him and believe in him, they'll never hunger and never thirst. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. I mentioned this last week, but blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is what he's telling them. The one who hungers and thirsts for Christ's righteousness will be satisfied. How does that happen? Jesus makes two statements here that are inseparable. You, you cannot pull these things apart. These are the inseparable aspects of salvation. He says, whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me. This is the same thing that he said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. When it says... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Whoever comes to me, repentance, and believes in me, faith. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Repentance is, is turning from sin and coming to Christ. That's what repentance is. So think of the prodigal son. We remember the story. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's repentance and faith. It's turning from sin, turning from the the pig slop, the pods that the pigs eat. It's turning from sin and coming to Christ, and it is believing in Him. So the one who comes to Christ is the one who believes in Christ. They're inseparable um, concepts and, and believes here. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Believes means trusts. It means puts faith in. And he says that this leads to to full satisfaction. It leads to the Father throwing a feast for you. It leads to the Father cloaking you with the good cloak of Christ's righteousness. Repentance and faith. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, he says. Now Jesus doesn't mean here that there is no need for a continued dependence on him, or to, to stay with the metaphor with a, for a continual feeding on Christ. In fact, he will talk about that a little bit more later. What he means is there's, there's no longer a core emptiness. It means that you're no longer dying of sal, uh, starvation. Instead, listen to Romans chapter 7. Just get this picture in your mind. They've washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is what it means to come to Christ. It's what it means to believe in Christ. It's only Jesus that can satisfy like that. It's only Jesus that can give us hope like that. Only Jesus Christ can claim the title reserved for God. I am the bread of life. But look at verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. What Jesus is talking about in this entire chapter It's more than just seeing Christ. It's more than just following him around for for what he might do for you, for what he might do for this crowd of people. Following him around because Jesus meets their immediate needs. He had said to them up in verse 26, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me? This is when they found him on the other side of the lake. You're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me because of what I've done for you today. Jesus isn't fooled by this crowd. See, he knew that even though they found him, they did not come to him. Even though they saw him, they did not believe in him. This is a common warning in Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels that, that many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will respond, depart from me, for I never knew you. Well, here Jesus quickly takes the focus off the crowd 
and he puts it right where it ought to be on the author of salvation. Brings us to the second truth about himself that we need to understand, and that is this. Christ is the receiver of all who come to him. He is the receiver of all who come to him. He will not reject you. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. J.C. Ryle, again, he's really helpful here. He he writes this on, on these verses. He says, what does coming to Christ mean? What does coming to Christ mean? It means that movement of the soul which takes place when a, when a man, feeling his sins and finding out that he cannot save himself, hears of Christ, applies to Christ, trusts in Christ, lays hold on Christ, and leans all his weight on Christ for salvation. When this happens to a man, it is said in Scripture language that he has come to Christ. That's, that's really good. And Bishop Ryle would agree that we have to also understand who it is that is genuinely sovereign over salvation. Jesus tells us here clearly and explicitly and plainly that it is the Father who is sovereign over salvation. All that the Father gives me will come to me. People don't come to Christ because it seems like a good idea to them. Why would it? It can't seem like a good idea to those who are living in the passions of their flesh. It can't seem like a good idea to come to Christ to those who are children of wrath. It can't seem like a good idea to come to Christ to those who are following the course of this world, who are following the the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Instead of coming to Christ because it seems like a good idea at the time, we need to understand that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. We need to believe that in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Two points there. First, I didn't make that up. And second, It doesn't mean the opposite of what it says. See, that's Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul tells us here, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus tells us right here, Paul says explicitly that before Genesis 1-1, before the foundation of the world, the Father chose us. And we we can even say He predestined us for adoption because that's clearly what the Bible teaches. Paul will explain it to the Romans to the church in Rome like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 39, he says this, and some of these statements will be familiar to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Just let me underline that again. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now there are a lot of, you should say amen after that. There are a lot of famous statements from Paul in those verses. We need to keep, keep them in context. They go all together. So when Paul makes these familiar statements, and they rang a bell somewhere in your brain when you heard, if God is for us, who can be against us? We are more than conquerors. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Or even when you hear the phrase, all things work together for good, all of those things are true because of John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So some will hear this, and they'll come to this conclusion. They will say, well then, and surely there is no point to evangelism. If God predestined the fate of Christians, then there's no point in sharing the gospel, because he's just going to save them anyway. That way of thinking has driven many people to one of two errors. Either they embrace that belief, that there's no point in evangelism, because God's just going to save whom God will save, that goes directly against the Great Commission. It goes directly against the pattern established in the book of Acts. It goes directly against the teaching of the epistles. Um, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach, and, and really it's preaching, to save those who would believe. Telling people the gospel is how God has chosen to save those who will believe. And so embracing this belief that, that evangelism is futile in, in the, in, is the first error that people fall into. And it's wrong, it's an error. But the second is more common. The second is that people reject this doctrine of uh, election or predestination. And they in, instead change the clear meaning of Scripture to say something, something like God's just simply looked through time and, and saw how we would choose. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that God did this. Romans 8, 28 to 39 says that God saved us. Those whom He foreknew, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. God did all of that. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus trusted this to be true. We could even say Jesus believed in predestination. Or to put it another way, he believed in God's sovereignty. But he also believed in human responsibility because he said at the same time, whoever comes to me, whoever turns from their sin and comes to Christ, I will never cast out. 
Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Coming to Christ, repentance, is the responsibility of the hearer, those who hear the word. But these two ideas, which seem so at odds to one another, divine uh, sovereignty, God's sovereignty, and human responsibility, they seem at odds with each other, but they're completely intertwined. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All who come to Christ have come to Christ because the Father gave them to the Son. And all who come are genuinely saved because Christ has promised to never reject them. There's there's no mystery there, really. We could file this under the doctrine of irresistible grace. God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. R.C. Sproul said that. God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. Or maybe we could call this effectual grace. Because God's grace will effect what God intends it to effect. God's will will be done. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the reason that Christ will not reject whoever comes to him because he is perfectly submissive and perfectly obedient to the will of his father this is the entire point of the incarnation of christ coming in the flesh that he might bring salvation and thereby bring glory to god in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men this is the will of god but jesus doesn't stop there because jesus isn't just for the about to be converted He's not just for the, Jesus is not just a, for a once-in-a-lifetime event. He's also the preserver of all believers. This is the third truth about himself that we need to see here. Christ is the preserver of all believers. He will fulfill God's plan of salvation. Look at verse 39. For I have come down from, uh, excuse me, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. This is the will of God. The perseverance of the saints. This is the will of God. Remember, we're talking about eternal life, which is by definition not temporary. It's eternal life. Give us this bread always. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. This is a promise from God to his people. When Jesus says that that whoever comes to him will never hunger, that those who believe in him will never thirst, he's offering salvation freely to all who would believe. Whosoever will may come. And he's saying that those who come have been sent by the Father and they should have no fear of rejection because he will never lose you. There's nothing that you can do that can cause you to slip out of God's hands. Nothing. There's nothing that you can do that will cause you to slip out of God's hands. Jesus will never let go. You can do nothing. I need to emphasize this. You can do nothing to lose your justification. The Father will not remove the coat of Christ's righteousness, his imputed righteousness that he has wrapped around you, his righteousness that he has put on you, he will not take that coat off you. You can't lose your salvation. If that were, if that were, if that were somehow possible, 
then these promises here would be meaningless. Verse 40, he reiterates this again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the promise of the resurrection. I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise him up on the last day. That's the promise of victory. That's what that is. Even at death, Christ has not lost. Even at death, Christ hasn't lost. Let me finish this morning by reading conclusion to Paul's exposition of what he said was a message of first importance, the gospel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he lays out the gospel very clearly. And in verses 50 to 58, he concludes by saying this. So 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Here's the saying. This will come to pass at that point. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord... Your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's the promise of God to His people, and it will come true. Let's pray. Lord, some of these doctrines can be hard to understand or maybe better to say hard to believe. And yet our gracious God sent His Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We believe that to be true. Lord, it causes us to worship when we realize that we were given to the Son by our Father who chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Lord, that should cause us, like the Apostle Paul, to just drop to our knees in worship. And so I pray, Lord, that, that you would write these truths on our hearts. 
Help us to understand these things and that it would transform our minds into those who love you and worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.